continuing this morning with our sermon series from Matthew, seven lessons from Matthew 7. This morning we're looking at chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That is Jesus' teaching for us this morning. question that we might want to ask in these words when Jesus challenges us to, uh, and there's a way to look at this, that you're, you're walking up to uh, a narrow gate, but I think what Jesus is trying to say in these verses is not so much uh, whether you make the good confession, certainly that's part of it, uh, that Jesus wants us to know who he is and to make that good confession. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, but what comes next? What do we do with that? After we walk up to the gate, after do we, uh, do we go through and do we recognize the discipleship, the kind of living that we're called to? Do we consider that? And I think when Jesus talks about the fact that there are perhaps a number of people that can come to the gate, if you will, but find it very difficult to live the rest of their life in service and in commitment to Jesus Christ, in service to the commitment that they have made, the confession that they have made. So, in the Gospels, Jesus tells, or the Gospel writers tell, of many encounters that Jesus has with people who want to follow, but just can't quite get there. So he talks about an encounter. The gospel writers talk about an encounter that Jesus has with a man, with people who come to him saying, Lord, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, come on. And then immediately, those who've expressed the desire to follow say, well, there are just a few things that I need to take care of first. There's some practical things. I need to go back home and, and, and take care of some things. I need to pay some bills before I go. Uh, There's a funeral, family funeral coming up. I probably need to attend that. Uh, There's some things I've got to do, but I want to follow. And Jesus' response is essentially, there are always going to be things to do. There are always going to be reasons that you can't follow. There are always going to be one more thing. If there's just one more thing I have to do, And then I'll commit myself to following. I'll actually do it. Then Jesus tells a story about a man of some wealth, of some means, who comes up and he's seeking eternal life and he wants to know what he's got to do. And Jesus says, well, you followed the commandments, basically. And the guy said, I'm pretty good with that. Okay, just one more thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And it's at that point that this man can't do it. He sees in Jesus something that points to greater life. 
to a life more fulfilling. But at the point that he has to give up that part of his life that is holding him back from following, he can't do it. He can't let go. And Jesus doesn't reject him. It says in the gospel, he walks away with his head bowed, uh, sorry, feeling sorry, that he can't do what Jesus asked him to do. So, Jesus tells us in his uh, life and through his teachings just how difficult it may be. Again, uh, people who want to follow, and Jesus says, uh, good, but do you realize, the Son of Man, that I've got nowhere to lay my head? I don't know what the next town's going to offer. I don't know what, the, what we're walking into. But we're walking. We're going to take the path. Can you walk that kind of, uh, can you make that kind of journey? Can you walk that kind of walk? That is the narrow gate, I think, that Jesus calls us to go through. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, uh, when he was near death, he said to his son, there's one thing I want you to remember, and I want you to tell other people that God has had everything of William Booth that I can offer. And William Booth started, uh, there was no Salvation Army. Booth was the founder, the one who started and began to grow that in England into the great ministry that it has become. The Sermon on the Mount, and this is certainly part of that sermon, and we're getting near the conclusion of the sermon, but it's not a, uh, some principles or, or just some good advice from a religious guru. It has meaning It has validity, the teaching, because it is derived from what God has done through Jesus Christ. And you can't separate the two. Uh, The interesting, and make it just an interesting teaching, some interesting ideas about how to live life. If we make the confession, the good confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then... There's this call to discipleship. And too often in the church, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote some years ago now, too often in the church we, we offer cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer called it. You go come and make the good confession and never, never challenge people with the cost of discipleship. Or certainly don't make them aware of that or as aware as, the, as, aware as they should be. That there's some expectation after that good confession that we can make because of God's grace. But there's some expectation that we're going to do something with that. That we're going to live our life in a certain way. And we're going to live that and find meaning in that in such a way that it can be passed on to other people. It can be shared with other people, that other people can see something in our life, 
some kind of ethical principle, ethical teaching by which we're living, then makes sense in a world that is too full of hate and violence and disregard for other people and disregard for their rights, lack of respect for who they are. We forget that God created all of us and we're all God's children. And if there's any place that people should know uh, God's love, know that they're God's children and be respected, it's in the church and it's by church people. That's something that we have to live. That's also something we have to hand off. I watched the uh, Olympics. I don't know if any of you all uh, tuned in while that was on for for two weeks. Nancy was forced to watch it every night for uh, two weeks. I won't say forced. She enjoys a lot of those events. If you're familiar with uh, our track team, you know that we have some of the fastest runners in the world. In the 4 by 100 relay, if you put all four of our runners together, we certainly are one of the fastest two or three uh, teams in the world. And that was the case again this year. But if you also follow our track team at all, our track experience in the Olympics over the years, decades now, uh, you know that the men's relay team has always had problems with one of of what you would think would be the simplest things. One thing that they have to do right in order for the race to make a difference, to race to count. There's just one thing you have to do. You've got to run fast, of course. But you've got to be able to pass the baton. And that's one thing our track team has been terrible, terrible at doing. And if you watch this Olympics, you know we were terrible again. We had a... Uh, 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 an incident in one of the heats where our runner uh, was trying to pass a baton. Anyway, he got knocked off the track by a Brazilian runner. Now, we got away with that, or we didn't get away with that, but we got a fair ruling, and, and the, uh, the guys that, that reviewed the races said, we, that he got forced off the track. That wasn't his fault. You'll get another chance to qualify for the finals, and they let our team qualify for the finals, We were on the track by ourselves, just our team, running against the clock. Lo and behold, we made every pass, every baton pass perfectly. We qualified for the finals, and there was great expectation that we would do well. Uh, Perhaps not win, but certainly finish in the top three. And when that race time came, that's exactly what seemed to happen. We crossed the finish line. We won the silver medal, or we thought we had won the silver medal. And about three or four minutes later, we found out we hadn't won the silver medal. We'd been disqualified because we hadn't passed the baton correctly on one of the legs. And that negated the whole thing. Passing the baton. Practicing. Part of what the, uh, one of the commentators said is the reason the Japanese are so good at, at this race is they spend hours. They don't have the fastest runners, they, but they spend hours making sure they pass the baton right. They practice that. Well, 
in the church, we're called to pass the baton. And that means in order to do that in a way that makes sense, in a way that will count, we get to practice that. We've got to do the things that Christ calls us to do. Be the people that Jesus calls us to be. Pay attention to that. Don't walk up to the gate. Maybe just take a step or two through the gate and then forget about it. And give no evidence in our life that anything that Jesus says makes any difference. So we can still have the same prejudices that we had before we walked through the gate and we can rationalize that Part of the rationalizing of that is blaming it on the people that we're prejudiced against. We can, you know, walk through the gate and never let go of our prejudice. Never have enough compassion in us that we can recognize that many people, most of the world, did not have the opportunity to grow up, or the opportunity to live as we live. And then not be touched by that, not remember Jesus' words, to whom much is given, much is expected, rather than, I have enough, or at least I think I have enough, but it sure would be nice to have more. And more. And more. Now Jesus says to us, we have to live our life as if our confession of faith in Christ makes a difference. So George Washington Carver, if you're looking for a prayer to pray every morning, this is, not a, this is a good prayer. If you're looking for something to say, George Washington Carver, great farmer, great inventor, great discoverer of all the uses uh, that the peanut could have and make in, uh, a difference in the rural south in agriculture. In many ways, uh, Carver saved many parts of the rural south during his time with his discoveries. But here's the prayer that he prayed every single morning. As soon as his feet hit the floor, he said, Lord, what are you and I going to do today? What are you and I going to do, Lord? What are we going to do today? Billy Graham said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration. Who's not inspired when they're standing on a mountain? But, he said, the fruit is grown in the valley. Down where the people are. Lord, what are you and I going to do today? Keep that prayer in your mind, in your hearts, and in your thoughts when you wake up tomorrow morning. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the challenges that are presented to us through the gospel, through Jesus' words. God, help us as we go uh, through this day and through all the days that you give us. To ask ourselves, Lord, what are you and I going to do today? In Christ's name, amen.